Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Kane Day Wiley. The St. Louis Art Museum is presenting Kane Day Wiley St. Louis, an exhibition of 11 paintings for which Wiley chose his models from northern St. Louis City and from Ferguson in St. Louis County and posed them in ways informed by paintings in the St. Louis Art Museum's collections. The exhibition was curated by Simon Kelly and Hannah Clem with assistance from Molly Moog. It's on view through February 10th, 2019. An exhibition catalog is forthcoming. Wiley's work is also included in People Get Ready, building a contemporary collection at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. Wiley's work is in the museum's European gallery. People Get Ready is on view through January 6th, 2019. Kende Wiley is the first African-American artist to paint an official U.S. presidential portrait of Barack Obama for the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. He's also been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Brooklyn Museum, the Jewish Museum in New York City, the Columbus Museum of Art, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. On the second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Allison DeLima Green discusses kindred spirits Louise Nevelson and Dorothy Hood. But first, Kende Wiley, after the break. Bringing together more than 80 objects, the Nasher Sculpture Center's The Nature of Arp provides a long-overdue look at the achievements of Jean Hans Arp, one of the most important and multifaceted artists of the modern era. On view at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 6, 2019. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Come to the Getty Center for a respite from the holiday madness. Three new exhibitions open this month, Monumentality, Spectacular Mysteries, and Artful Words, while major exhibitions Sally Mann and the Renaissance Nude continue along with a queen's treasure from Versailles, the art of three faiths, and other focused shows. Learn more about what to see and do at the Getty this December at getty.edu 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery, a work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery, all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. 
Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Ken Day Wiley, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by talking about the new paintings in St. Louis. You typically cast the people in your pictures out on streets wherever you're working. In this case, uh, you went into northern St. Louis City, so above Del Mar, and also into St. Louis County, specifically Ferguson. Were you hoping or intending that both your process and the pictures you made for St. Louis, were you hoping that those would carry within them a response to both the recent history of white supremacy as expressed especially through longstanding police misconduct in Ferguson, and then also, of course, the 2014 Ferguson uprising? I think so. I think that I wanted to be able to create an exhibition that responded to America at large. When I was invited to do the exhibition in St. Louis, I was delighted in that St. Louis sits at a very crucial intersection between so many of the issues surrounding race, uh, identity and selfhood that American is, America is grappling with at the moment. The exhibition at its core is a look at museum history, a look at the black body and public space, and, and also, I think, a very personal voyage into what those two worlds feel like when they collide. It's very important for me, obviously, to start in the streets, start by going to places where people are minding their own business, trying to get to work, and I tap them on the shoulders and ask them if they would be interested in hearing what it is that I do and asking them whether or not they'd be interested in becoming part of my process. There is something to be said about exploding the casual moment into something that's very deliberate, something that has a bit of the, the mundane, but something that also has a lot of deliberate uh, art practice uh, embedded in it. There are a couple of things that uh, you've been moving toward in your work in recent years that that come out in, in the St. Louis work. So I thought one way of talking about them would be through the St. Louis work. One of them is women. They come into your work in about 2012 or so, so a little, uh, a little over a decade after you finished your MFA at Yale. Most of the new pictures in St. Louis, in fact, are of or include women, 7 of 11. So 2012 was when women came in. Why did you decide to open the work up to bring women into it? Well, it's a very important question. So much of my earliest work was self-portraiture. Not in a single one of those pictures will you see me embodied in those paintings, but what's being dealt with is a type of blackness that's televisualized and packaged for American and global consumption that has to do with me, that has to do with people who happen to occupy a black American male body. The subject matter for those 10 years happened to do with the dissonance between what it feels like to be in this body and the two-dimensional caricature that I was being told to consume. So much of my, my, what my work was attempting to do in earlier paintings was to try to add a little bit of levity, truth, and uh, actuality into the conversation, to be able to take scary notions of hypersexuality, uh, propensity towards sports, and antisocial behaviors as this sort of sheer mockery of a black American male existence, 
and to turn that into a 360 sense of what it feels like, both beautiful and terrible, terrible to, 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 to occupy this space. What art can do at its best is to elucidate those dark corners in the popular imagination. Well, for so many people who happen to look like me, those spaces aren't that dark. Those places aren't that terrible. They happen to be the bodies that we consider uh, to be just as graceful as any other. That that moment of grace is, I think, the, the goal of the project in its first 10 years of growth. Since then, I think I've broadened the conversation to include not only the full gender spectrum, but also a global conversation that moves beyond America. I wanted to be able to take this street casting model and go into places like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, uh, Sao Paulo and Colombia, Sri, Colombo, Sri Lanka. The idea of challenging myself as a, as a creative thinker, as a cultural actor, is something that I take quite seriously. And I think that celebrating black women and their presence not only in St. Louis, but globally, is a great joy of mine. I think one way that your work speaks across cultures, and and this is something I've thought a lot more about in the last couple years of American history and presence, is that it engages European traditions at a time when American leadership is increasingly isolationist. There are two different paintings of yours in St. Louis that are each based on a single portrait of Charles I by Daniel Martensch-Meitens the Elder, who was a late 16th and early 17th century Dutch painter. In one of those two Wileys, your sitter, or stander, but you know what I mean, (laughs) is a man. His name is Thomas Bradley. You met him in a Ferguson barber shop, and the other is a woman named Ashley Cooper, whom you met at a pizza place in North St. Louis. What interested you about bringing both a man and a woman to a single portrait of a king? Well, there's the temporal shift. There is a sense in which fashion decays, social norms shift. I love the sense in which a painting that was about the aggrandizement of a single personage can be raffled out, its, its contents fully displayed, and by virtue of who the sitter is, we start to appreciate its component parts in a new way. What we see is the 21st century as it's being seen on young people in St. Louis. What we see in earlier paintings coming from Western Europe and from, uh, I would argue, the entire tradition of Western European easel paintings is this sort of slow unfolding of the way that clothing changes, the sense that a pose can, that in one period in time can connote a sense of dignity and self-possession, can in the 21st century look quite ridiculous or overly grandiose. The shifting way that we can receive the same body of information or the same pictorial narrative is something that's fascinating to me. I love the fact that when uh, asking young men to take on certain poses, there's a, a, a type of delight. And that same delight can be seen in a different way when young women take it on. Gender can be taken out of the picture and that sense in which the sitter themselves are perhaps confused or delighted with the opportunity of presenting both to me, the artist, and to the world by extension a version of themselves that is at once a performance and at the second a a type of testament to the possibilities of how art has been seen in the past and how they themselves can be seen from here on out. And presumably there's an element in 
the 16th or 17th century, men were inevitably, by virtue of patriarchal norms, the the supreme monarch. And in a contemporary setting, I, I, I can only imagine or guess that the only way to deal with that is to to let women make that pose, that, that kingly pose, their own. That's right. In fact, so many trappings of power are being put on like drag in this work. The entire notion of distilling a vocabulary of grace down into a tradition of painting is one that I both embrace and criticize in this body of work. There is a sense in which I've spent my entire life devoted to the narrative of power and its trappings in, in, in Western easel painting. And I love so much of it, but I also recognize in it some of the major crises of power, the major crises of, of empire. And I think that I'm just simply using its form, using its bones, using its, its contours as a means of holding up a mirror to who we've been and the, the potentiality of who we can be. Is there any particular part of queer theory or feminist theory that has been important to you when you have thought about queering monarchical portraiture? I like the way you put that. And I think so. I mean, I go back to some of the earliest writings surrounding whiteness and the the invention of whiteness and blackness, for that matter. Looking at Richard Dyer, who comes out of film theory, but also queer theory. This sense in which we can look at a culture and look at the ways that both gender and race are at their core performances, that by virtue of certain cultural and economic needs have been sort of solidified over time. Someone's, someone's benefiting from the status quo or the state of affairs. And I, I suppose my job as an artist is not simply to, to hold it up and to point to things or to say that this is the structure, but to ultimately on some level say how I feel about it. I suppose further though, in the end, the most interesting work is the work that doesn't stand on a type of pedagogical footprint and, and demand to be taken seriously. I want to make work that is fun and full of life and full of uh, curiosity. Work that doesn't want to preach, but rather embrace the oftentimes confusing mixes and mishmashes of, of how people uh, fashion identity in the 21st century. What does it feel like in the streets of Peru versus the streets of Vietnam to, to listen to American hip-hop and imagine a future in which you, you and your brown body are part of it? Increasingly, this is what my work is obsessed with, and I think that the work in St. Louis has taken the lessons learned on a global scale and bringing them back home. You mentioned Richard Dyer. There's one other book I want to mention because the author was on the podcast earlier this year. That's Nell Irvin Painter. Her book, The History of White People, is a major exploration of whiteness throughout history. And I think that especially to white audiences, your work and her title, um, even before people have opened the book, make, make a lot of sense, you know, bring the work into focus in a specific way. In your painting, Charles I, the one featuring Ms. Cooper, she's wearing camouflage, a camouflage top. I don't know if she wore that for you or if you inserted that when you went through your normal studio process. 
but it points to a certain relationship between what what she's wearing and the background of of the painting. Could you talk us through how you think about that camo print and the background of the painting and their relationship to each other? Certainly. I think there's an extraordinary conversation between camouflage and the field, the landscape. The idea of the camouflage, obviously, is that you disappear into it, but the very act of portraiture announces presence. What I do in my process is that I allow each sitter, each model in my paintings, to decide what they're going to be wearing on the day of the shoot. And so while we may meet in a pizza shop or in a barber shop or on the subway station, what I tell each sitter is that it's going to be a very large painting that uh, should be taken seriously. And so whatever it is that you feel should be appropriate for your, your portrait, whatever it is that makes you feel good, wear it that day. And she did. I think that it's oftentimes easy to make facile, facile judgments about how people see portraiture and how people who may not or may or may not belong to ivory tower museum cultures respond to this provocation. But in the end, each person makes their own decision about how they are pictured or seen within this conversation. The camouflage in a strange sense also brings up a secondary issue with regards to the background, which is that there's a war going on. There is a battle between the foreground and the background. The paintings themselves stand as a strange signifier of this, this, this battle for visibility. The background is at once decorative and docile, but it's also demanding space. It's, it's pushing forward and overlapping above and beyond the figure in the same way in which uh, this artist is demanding that these bodies be positioned and placed within museum walls and being taken seriously within a broader historical context. So speaking of clothing and women, your first series to include women was titled An Economy of Grace, and it features women in gowns that were specially designed for you by Ricardo Tichy, who was then at Givenchy and who is now the chief creative officer of Burberry. The new work in St. Louis features, you know, does not feature predetermined clothing as in that 2012 work. Why did you start making paintings of women in designer gowns, and then why did you leave it? Well, as an entry point, I wanted to sort of look at the male gaze, G-A-Z-E, and I wanted to sort of unpack some of the ways that we've looked at women art historically, and so much of that has to do with clothing, either in its presence or its absence. In its absence, we obviously recognize the entire tradition of the female nude, but I wanted to look specifically at the female clothed and fetishize or continue that conversation surrounding the fetishization uh, of, of female flesh. What happens when the conversation surrounding a man and his power and his ability to clothe his family in the most finest is, is sort of turned in on itself? What we have art historically is jewelry and clothing and land and uh, cattle being pictured on a picture plane all being displayed as signifiers of the male landowner's prowess, largesse uh, in this world. These, these, I think, become interesting stumbling blocks for anyone who has an interest in this, this, this body of work, this history. In my own work, I wanted to sort of start 
at that closing or its absence as uh, a point of departure or entry to look at this this question surrounding class and race. We look simply at uh, couture houses as the absolute signifier of of privilege and exclusion. Uh, In the couture house, uh, clothing is consumed on a level at, at which sort of pedestrian notion of exchange is thrown out of the window. Here, fashion takes on a type of muscularity, and it becomes a signifier not only for a woman and her beauty, but for the strength of uh, her family and the nation that gives rise to it. There is a kind of wink that's going on, a type of irony involved in the sense that we're uh, mobilizing uh, 21st century designers, 21st century fashion houses, in an age in which fast fashion is the, the ruling principle. Couture no longer has the type of saliency, and it is a bit of a throwback, but I did want to use it as a means by which we could sort of explore the trappings of capital and the trapping, the trappings of patriarchy. Last question uh, related to gender, or at least specifically related to gender. You have spoken a lot over many years about how you intended to address masculinity in your work, both masculinity as enacted by King Whomever Third, but also the masculinity of your modern-day sitter. Did you think about or do you have to think about addressing femininity in the same way? It's a question that is at the core of that project. Masculinity is something that is thrust upon you as something that needs to be policed Society, societally at the vanguard of or at the leading edge of patriarchy has to do with policing the way that men think of themselves. Uh, controlling black men and controlling their sense of masculinity has been at the core of uh, American chattel slavery. At its inception, we said that black men were not men and that they were uh, sheer animals without the rational mind and so the physical was coded for black bodies and the intellectual or the mental was associated with the rational white male mind of course brown people and women were thrown into that sort of strange hysterical irrational space in in many different ways in our own time while we don't demand the same type of policing surrounding femininity it's a it's a sort of basic given uh, the outrage that we see in the trans community and the disgust that we see in, in the broader community when looking at the trans experience has to do with how dare you throw away male privilege. You must be mentally ill to be able to sort of do away with something that we value as a society so dearly. I think that uh, if you look at the direct inverse of that, it's generally assumed that the feminine stance or the fe- the, the, the gendered female stance would be one that's not a performance, but rather the lowest state of affairs that one just simply is. Masculinity is a state of grace, and within that uh, sort of toxic argument, femininity becomes the sort of lowest common denominator. And I think by virtue of that, we don't see the contours of policing so far as, as far as we do in, in male notions of being. Black women specifically have been positioned in a really sort of anti-feminine space where white women were posited as the perfect examples of femininity. Black women were considered much more bestial, much more outside of the Western notions of what the absolute woman is. And so in many ways, 
the question can be seen in two different ways. Is it a question for black American women or is it a question for white women? And there are crosses to be born all around in that scenario. I do think that black women have unique challenges with regards to the performance of a Western European notion of femininity. And they've come up with any number of beautiful ways to respond to that terrible past and that terrible present. I want to talk about another of the paintings in St. Louis, one titled Three Girls in a Wood. There are two things about it in which I'm interested. One is your decision to work after a 1920 Otto Muller painting of the same title that's a really great painting that's in the St. Louis Art Museum's collection. First, there there is not a ton of 20th century painting references in your work. That is, you quite often use poses and references from before modernism. You know, appreciating that there's some 19th century in this painting of yours, and we'll get to that in a minute. Why did you choose to step into the? <laughs> why did you choose to step into the 20th century? <laughs> well, in many ways, this is uh, what I wanted to do with this exhibition was to uh, make a strong break with a lot of the work that I had done heretofore. The exhibition was and is a celebration of the St. Louis Museum's extraordinary collection. The Mueller painting is phenomenal, and I think it its structure was ideal for the coming together of several sitters within one picture plane. I wanted to be able to work cross-generationally and work against the individual within a picture where we can get outside of the question of whether or not uh, figurative painting points at an absolute portrait. I've always had the suspicion that portraiture is impossible. Can painting ever point to something that is real or indelible about an individual? Or does it simply display a list of parts? Does it simply display a series of signifiers that the sitter is allowing us to see at any given point? There's a certain fraudulent narrative surrounding portraiture from its inception. But when it's groups, when it's a scene, it becomes bigger than the individual. It becomes about us. It becomes a a sort of statement larger. It's a portrait of St. Louis. It's a portrait of its collection. It's a portrait of the community now welcomed into those walls. And I welcome any number of disruptions to my normal process in the process of making that show. I I was really interested in how you complicated the poses of the three women in the Muller and the three women in in your painting. We'll have images of of, of both paintings on manpodcast.com. But for now, I'll describe it as, I'll describe your painting as less being a direct crib or an 85% hat tip to a pose or a grouping than it is kind of a smirking nod. In short, I think you used the Muller to address the earlier French and later German painters who were making Luncheon on the Grass referencing paintings. So what in the Muller opened that up for you and made that both forward and backward reference possible? And maybe maybe most importantly, why did you decide to expand away from the poses in the Muller into into a broader historical address? broader address is the point. All historical paintings that I reference in my work are a starting point, and I'm not beholden to absolute pose or accuracy. What I really wanted to do was to take this notion of the déjeuner outdoors, the sense of the picnic or the sort of unfortunate notion of the picnic in a very African-American chattel slavery context in which black bodies are literally being bought and consumed 
into something sort of more pastoral, pastoral and, and horrifying. In my own work, I take the display of the body in open air as a sort of simple nod to the museum's collection. But I think if you, if you look a little bit closer, it becomes about who's on the menu. It becomes more about the act of looking at painting is the act of consuming and, and, and who's being served up and by whom. I hope that the viewer sees a, a painter of goodwill who's using the language of consumption in a transformative way. I hope that the viewer sees that by virtue of taking tools that were once used as knives and forks, uh, this luncheon can be one in which we can lay down arms and start to recognize a new new sense of providence. So having heard you, you talk about the painting for a moment, I, th there's an element of it I want to describe for the listener because I think that there's uh, maybe a layer to which you're referring to which you're referring that is worth making more immediately available. Uh, three people, uh, the two women on the outside are looking right at the viewer. The woman in the middle of the painting is the one, air quotes, closest to the viewer. Her back is to us. She's wearing red. We are being watched watching her which is a reference to, to both the contemporary and to French painting and, I guess, to the Muller, too. I think so. The act of being watched or the act of positioning yourself as something to be seen is complicated uh, today because of selfie culture, the sense in which we put ourselves out there in a very self-conscious way. I'm asking each person to show up on a specific day as though this were the most enduring, indelible selfie ever. There's, a, there's definitely a language around display and intentionality that's being toyed with here, but I think it's constantly evolving over time. And I think that the way that these paintings are going to be seen by this generation today perhaps is uh, a little bit more uh, complicated by those truths. How do you decide how much your backgrounds should overlay or even interact with the figure? And I ask because I think in the pictures in St. Louis, there might be more overlaying and interacting with backgrounds than there is in any other single body of your work. You know, there's, there's some paintings where the background is a friend, while still others, the background is a lot more problematic. And I think in that painting, it was decidedly a foe. There's, there's a harder task there to pull out graceful, smaller pieces that can play easily with others. Uh, it's more chunky. And it's, it's not as though I couldn't just simply choose another background. Everything here is worked up on computer and painstakingly created before the painting even goes from graphite pencil to oil study to final uh, iteration. What I loved about it was its uh, unwieldiness. What I loved about it was that it's a difficult scale. It's a difficult cropping. Uh, I'm demanding that the human body exists on a much larger scale relative to negative space than any of my work heretofore. And I'm just sort of trying to push the discomfort level with the, the amount of breathing room within the picture plane. Let's broaden out a bit. Over the last decade or two, there's been a real renaissance of black artists, not just Americans, engaging portraiture in, in various forms. And a lot of it is portraiture 
uh, and painting that in which the present um, addresses the past. You know, an example might be Carrie James Marshall's pictures of, of Nat Turner or Micheline Thomas's kind of fudging the past and the present through her uh, works of her mother. A number of these artists are your friends. You were at Yale with Micheline Thomas, for example, and you two are still close. Uh, while you were at Yale, Iona Rosiel Brown was there, um, as was Mangeshi Mutu, who doesn't do as much portraiture as, 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 as you and uh, Micheline Thomas do. But I was I was wondering, going back to Yale in, in 2000, 2001, did you and Micheline Thomas in particular talk about portraiture and and figure out what y'all what each of you wanted to do with it? We were outliers at Yale. Portraiture was decidedly unfashionable. And we were at a program where the aesthetics of conceptual ideation and mark making were decidedly minimal. And in many ways, the presence of the body at all and the presence of the female black or brown body in particular denoted the absence of intellectual vigor. And so what we did was we created a series of conversations with each other, with, our, with people of goodwill. You have to realize that in art education, in art school, while we rely on professors, some of the best lessons come from fellow artists. And so we would lick each other's wounds and do studio visits and have some of those enduring conversations that still to this day I carry with myself to the studio. Micheline continues to be a very good friend, uh, Wangeshi Mutu, Iona Rosiel Brown. We had any number of black friends, white friends, uh, artists who were all sort of stuck together and have to figure it out really do create their own tribes and their own sense of uh, a chosen family. And uh, I'm really blessed to, to include my Yale family as part of that. Are there any particular conversations you remember with, with any of those three, unless it was four, <laughs> I'm not very good at counting, about either portraiture or how to represent the body at a time when art was often not interested in the body? It wasn't about the body so much, but rather how to create a type of representational painting that was perceived as having the same vigor as the stuff that the white boys was making. And what was immediately clear was that the white male body was coded for a type of ready-made complexity. I mean, these we're talking about a sort of Duchampian presence in a way that Duchamp had never even intentionalized. This, 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 this ready-made complexity was something that these paintings or works of art that were made by other students was, it was a territory that, or a country that we could never occupy. And the real question was how to be taken seriously. I think that what we arrived at was a consensus that we shouldn't wait for the world to catch up with us, but rather that we should move forward, learn as much as we can about any number of things, and to create brilliantly, and hopefully at some point the work, the work would be recognized, but not to slow down and dumb it down so that the contours of our, our minds could become intelligible for people who don't see us as having those minds. Last year you made a series of portraits of artists, most or all of whom are your friends, and one of them uh, was of Micheline Thomas. It's titled uh, Trickster Portrait of Micheline Thomas the Coyote. I guess two questions about that. First, anything from your student days, student interactions, early days, friendship with her end up in the portrait? And secondly, obviously, why the coyote? 
anyone who is familiar with African-American folk tales and some of the Br'er Rabbit stories that come out of uh, early American folkloric storytelling recognizes the importance of the trickster and the shapeshifter. But I think what many of us don't recognize is the West African root of many of those models. Uh, obviously, American culture is a mishmash of Europe and native uh, First Nations people and, and, and quite a bit of Africa, which gives rise to this notion of the trickster who is at once definable and, and effable, but also someone who introduces chaos into your world. And that certainly uh, is the case when thinking about a Michelin Thomas. When you think you understand, or just when you think you understand what her work or what her practice is about, she confounds you. She showed up at Yale making polka dot abstractions, paintings that had enormous uh, allegiance to the drip, enormous allegiance to masculinist scale and uh, rigorous use of paint as paint for its own sake. And then, of course, you fast forward a few seconds later and she's making some of the most erudite observations around the photography and her own black female body. I think that if ever there were a trickster within art making, uh, she would be it, both from an artistic and intellectual standpoint to just a personal sense of how she can go from zero to 60 in terms of personal temperature. She's the best. Uh, the coyote is the Native American equivalent to Eshuwe Legba in the sort of Yoruba pantheon. Eshu, of course, is the uh, god who's the ultimate trickster marked on one side with dark black side or on the other with a sort of reddish, often white, other side. Uh, the story here about Eshu is that just as you think you know what your life is about, just as you think you've got it all together, he will show up and shake it up either in a positive or negative way. At its best, what art does is to represent the world in a way that lets us see its positives, negatives, and everything in between. And Micheline Thomas is certainly at a great service there. Micheline told the story of her initial shapeshift into uh, the artist we now recognize on the Man podcast back in September. It's a story about how Kelly Jones and a class she took from Dr. Jones helped, helped her become the artist she is now. We'll have a link to it on, on manpodcast.com. Another of the trickster portraits features Carrie Mae Weems, who it, it, it's possibly, I don't know, for me, it's the most striking one. It is. It's something else. Two questions about that portrait. It looks like you've put her into a Bellini-esque landscape, cavescape. Why Bellini? I actually disagree. I, I was looking more at Goya and specifically at Goya's black painting. And I went to Madrid and I went to the Prado and I was trying to crack the code on these paintings. And I recognized very clearly that the landscape is designed to be resistant. The blackness itself is this kind of fortress that, that in a strange metaphorical way, uh, worked wonders for the ways that I was thinking about blackness and the ways that artists, black artists in America have dealt with this uh, impossibly uncrackable fortress of blackness. Uh, that said, uh, how do you move forward in trying to create a landscape that is at once open, vast, perspectively, and impenetrable from its conceptual outlook? What I did decide to do was to create shafts of light, to create a type of rock face. And if you look at the painting closely, 
you'll see that she's literally holding rocks in her own hand. That's part of why I thought it was Bellini. <laughs> I was thinking of I was thinking the, the St. Francis Jerome moment at the Frick. Certainly, but this this one actually comes from a literal sense of the rock and its impenetrability as as the the, the starting point and the end point uh, to to getting to Goya, uh, who's the unifier for that entire exhibition. What is Carrie Mae Weems wearing in the picture, and did she choose it, or did you? Carrie Mae Weems is wearing a gown that we pulled, I believe, from the Metropolitan Opera's Costume Institute. They have an incredible repository of old period gowns that have been in performances here and there. We had any number of them available on Iraq, and she decided to, to move into that space. What's interesting, though, is that during the photo shoot, she decides at a certain point to make the shoot itself the subject matter of her own work. And so while I'm in the midst of trying to pose her, she commandeers the photographer to have the hairstylist and the makeup artist and the light person and the sound person all stand still. She's at the center of the room. And snap, you now have a Carrie Mae Weems portrait of herself wandering through an artist's studio. It's absolutely one of the most uh, compelling images I've seen. We will try to find it and have it on manpodcast.com. So all of these portraits of your fellow artists, you talked at the beginning of our conversation about how there's a certain sense in which all of your work has its roots in a kind of self-portraiture. Have you made actual self-portraits of your actual self? Well, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, there's some painful little portraits that I did of myself at probably the age of 11 or 12. I started using myself as the cheapest, most readily available model. And I was actually fashioning uh, my portrait around some of the paintings that I saw at the Huntington Library and Gardens, where I went to uh, study painting and look at painting and to engage in the act of copying classics from a very young age. My mother sent me and my twin brother to art school when we were kids, just to keep us off the streets of South Central back during a lot of the gang violence. And I fell in love with it and started making these ridiculous self-portraits, which I hope will never see the light of day. Hopefully you won't dig those up. And it was many years later, after sort of abandoning figurative painting, going into dreadful abstraction and working in sculpture and, and clay, that I returned to painting and as opposed to painting myself uh, use the same anxiety of influence the same structuring of the self with all of these masters who stand before you as the, 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 the core subject matter for the work obviously along the way dealing with notions of nationhood gender and desire but all the while trying to keep a level of freshness and intrigue trying to keep myself excited every day to get into the studio and reimagine and question what it means to make painting viable in the 21st century. You have been working with and around portraiture for about 20 years now, and uh, many of the artists you engage in your work, and I'm talking about you know 17th and 18th century artists, not, not Carrie Mae Weems and, and McLean Thomas, those artists may have made their bread and butter from portraiture, but they also painted landscape or history or mythology or what have you. And last year, you opened up your practice with your In Search of the Miraculous Paintings, pictures that address transoceanic refugee travel. 
from the outside, this opening up of what you do seems like a pretty substantial step. Was it as big a difference and change in mindset as it seems like, or was it a pretty easy transition? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. In the material act of painting oceans, certainly it was a huge step. A lot of failed starts in in terms of photographing the water and photographing boats and how to piece together a language of marine painting and and portraiture it was it was a huge challenge but i think um some of the core issues certainly are are, are present in that body of work and and it continues throughout the entire arc of my career some of the key ideas surrounding empathy who are these refugees who are these people trying to find a new state of affairs the ocean is a metaphor the boat is a metaphor for uh, individual journeys for self-actualization there was a film that went along with those paintings which many of Fanon's observations surrounding mental illness and the project of colonialism come to bear. Much of what I was trying to do was to conflate the language of marine painting with a type of territory that is at once mapped and unknown. Is it possible to own a piece of the ocean poses the starting question. The answer is never arrived at. Did you find opening up your practice rewarding enough to do it again? I think so. I think that every new exhibition is an opening and and an opportunity to explore new territory, to make that jump from painting men in the African-American environment of Harlem and Brooklyn and Queens, and then throwing myself into a conversation about identity in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv was certainly no small task. Uh, I've always found myself in positions where I have to ask myself, do I have uncontested access to this history or uncontested access to these uh, traditions? And the answer is always no, because while we as human beings receive and I can enjoy the cultural fruits of all societies. There are some that are more resonant than others. As an artist and as a creative, my goal is to be as enriched by the multiplicity of histories and the multiplicity of stories that are available to me, but also I think my responsibility is to reflect back on where it is that I come from and what true north or what story resonates in a very actual way to me and how I can use all of those lessons learned to tell my truth, to paint my broad self-portrait using as many colors on my palette as possible. Those colors are comprised of material paint, but they're also comprised of nation's histories and uh, people's struggles with whatever performances they're Uh, desiring to put on or being told they have to put on. In the end, the, the making of the work is the biggest performance ever, and hopefully it gives rise to a newer understanding of, of, the dancing we're all doing. You have always enjoyed or even made yourself references 
to how your practice, including how you run your studio uh, on multiple sites, having a team of assistants and such, you've always enjoyed relating that way of working to the way painters have worked for the last, you know, 500 years. And, and you've often, you know, really thrived off of that kind of reference to historical tradition. So I give that background as a way of getting to this. One element of the melding of American portraiture tradition with studio tradition has been the way individual presidential portraits, think Gilbert Stewart and George Washington, for example, were produced in substantial numbers as the years went by by that very painter, Gilbert Stewart, or even after his death by his daughter, Jane Stewart. So probably nothing you do in your life will be as famous as your portrait of Barack Obama. Have you thought about whether you want to continue painting him? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't find that to be a particularly interesting place to go more than once. There's only one singular portrait of Barack Obama that hangs in the Smithsonian. And I think that it's a singularity. And I think it's a great moment to be inspired by. I do, I do know what you mean. I jokingly say sometimes that that's going to be on my gravestone. Kende Wiley, Obama portraitist. However, I, I do think that it opportunes other new ways of relating to what the, the art that I've done now uh, can be seen in relationship to that painting. I see it as an opportunity, an opening. When I first sat down with President Obama in 2016, he asked me when I wasn't guaranteed the job how I was going to make his portrait in a way differently from my, the portraits that I have done of the casual sitter, people who aren't celebrated, people who aren't uh, the most powerful man in the world. And it was a real call to arms. It was a real wake-up call. What I did was to, to move away from the trappings of power and to move away from the language of respectability in uh, political and uh, uh, capital P portraiture. What I moved towards instead was the interior life, who that man is that spent a childhood in both Hawaii and Indonesia, who later, much like myself, desires, desires to go find the land of his father in Africa. I took the uh, biographical narrative, uh, much more so than the political narrative, as the starting place. And there's a reason why he's not wearing a tie, why he's He's leaning forward towards you in the picture frame. Why each one of those flowers is a direct reference to some place that he's spent time in as, as, as a young man uh, developing and growing, as opposed to the landscape being completely alien, the, the field, the decorative background behind him being something that's being held out at arm's length. It becomes a new type of tapestry through which we can look at something seemingly familiar in a much more familiar way. The two most powerful people you've probably made pictures of are Michael Jackson and, and President Obama. You made those pictures almost 10 years apart. You know, your work is thoroughly, top to bottom, an address of power. Did you come to think anything differently about power and how to represent it through the Michael Jackson and President Obama experiences? I did. In fact, Michael Jackson contacted me and I had no idea that this was actual. In fact, I told my assistant to ignore the phone calls because there was an assistant on his end whose name, by the way, was Brother Michael. So that was a big confusion. This is Brother Michael calling for Michael Jackson 
I, I said ignore the call. Eventually, I, I, I had a mutual friend who said, my God, could you stop being an idiot and uh, pick up the phone? I ended up having some of the most amazing conversations with Michael Jackson about the power that he occupied, about the fame that he created, longed for, and was in many ways haunted by. There's a reason why he's wearing a suit of armor in that painting. It's because, in, in his words, he was creating an image of himself wearing something that holds in as much as it keeps out. There's a affinity towards Europe and some of the cliches of power, certainly, and his aesthetic. But I think in a much deeper psychological realm, he wanted to create a type of picture-making that held in it the brutality of fame and the complexity of how you can at once want something and be burned by it. Consequentially, it's, it's interesting to note that his understanding of art history was much more sophisticated than a casual viewer. And many might assume that someone whose life was devoted to the performance of music may not have such a, an encyclopedic understanding of painting. Uh, no near the case with Michael Jackson. He was remarking on uh, Rubens and the difference between early Rubens and late brushwork and how important it was to be able to infuse uh, his portrait with a sense of the early vigor and the latter sense of mastery, uh, that sort of a la prima brush brushstroke. You know, it's easily easily two of my favorite pictures, but also uh, the portrait of Obama and Jackson being two of the biggest outliers in my entire picture-making career to this day. It's kind of impossible to know all of an artist's 20-year exhibition record before talking with him, but uh, when I was looking at yours, I found... Only one show you've done, at least that I that I found, of drawings, and that was at uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art, Cleveland, about a decade ago. Do you make drawings on paper these days? And that's a very good question. In fact, drawing is the foundation of all painting, and it's something that I enjoy most. I recently uh, expanded my studio practice to include a studio in Dakar, Senegal, where it's been a good portion of my time now. And so much of what I concentrate on our works on paper. Uh, in fact, it's a space where I can really concentrate on watercolor in specific, uh, specifically. It's that sense in which oil painting can be perfected and the, the mark can be reworked and reworked until it, uh, it reaches a certain uh, level of perfection is just thrown out of the window with initial mark making and works on paper. There's a vulnerability there. I think by virtue of a lot of the popularity of the paintings, people want big painting exhibitions. You'll see a lot of that, but I, I look forward to uh, forefronting a lot more of the work on paper. So you're looking forward to that particular phone to ring, or it already has rung? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you can't wait for the phone to ring. You have to sort of demand for your, your audience to be fed what you're serving at a certain point. And luckily, I think I've reached a certain level where I can make certain demands. Ken Day Wiley, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, 
explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a Wex Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades, from 1976 to the present, a small selection of sculpture, and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s, when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. Next up, Allison DeLima Green, who joins me to discuss Kindred Spirits, Louise Nevelson, and Dorothy Hood. The exhibition presents the work of two mid-century artists who synthesized elements such as cubism and surrealism into American abstraction. The show's on view through February 3rd next year. Allison DeLima Green, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Always a pleasure to return. The first thing about this show that caught my eye is the rather provocative title with its call to Asher Duran's famed 1849 painting, a painting of two men. Why the title? Was it was the idea to open up a history between two artists who, who may not have known each other, but at least in the case of, of Dorothy Hood, certainly knew the other's work? Yes. And, you know, when you're talking about putting two artists together and looking at their work, the usual default is who influenced who and what I wanted to suggest immediately in the title wasn't that it was a matter of direct influence necessarily but of like outlook and after scrambling around with lots of bad titles I realized that Asher B. Durand had come up with a very good title many years ago and I was just going to steal it. Before we get into each of their work and the work that's in the show, what, what was the uh, area of shared interest? They both forged their identities as artists about the same time, pulling from common sources. Although Nevelson was a generation older than Hood, basically came of age as artists about the same time because Hood was a very early starter and Nevelson came to her full-blown art practice after starting a family, after a couple years of searching. 
And so they're both in New York when the great MoMA 20 centuries of Mexican art exhibition opens. And they're both fired to go to Mexico to discover uh, new ways of rooting their art in the past. And of course, this is at a time in 1941 when Europe is closed to Americans. Artists who might have gone to Paris to learn their trade a generation earlier can no longer do so. And so Mexico offered an opening of a door to both Dorothy Hood, who then spent almost two decades there, and to Louise Nevelson, who only made two but very decisive trips to Mexico and Guatemala in those years. Earlier in this season on the podcast, we've been talking about Black Mountain artists who, who also went to Mexico in these years. So, yeah, lots of artists were finding lots of, of opportunity, visual opportunity there. So when did Hood and Nevelson each go to Mexico and what did each find there? Nevelson did what she was really interested in the Olmec and Mayan ruins. She went into the rainforest down in Guatemala, excavated or went to excavations, I should say, of some of the ancient pillars, and which confirmed her interest already in this work that she first discovered at the Museum of Natural History. And Hood actually went down on a driving trip to Mexico City because she was from Texas. Driving down to Mexico didn't seem so difficult. She drove down first across America with friends and then into Mexico City. And she found a very congenial social circle and just set down roots. Both were acquainted with Diego Rivera. Nevelson had a closer friendship with Rivera and Kahlo than Hood did. Indeed, Nevelson probably came to Mexico partly at Diego Rivera's invitation because she had been an assistant on the Rockefeller mural briefly. And both, I think, were interested in surrealism and had a working knowledge of cubism. And all these sources, primitivism pulled out of Mexicans' legacies, pre-Columbian legacies, and more current themes were things that both artists were trying to integrate into their work in a very different fashion. So before we turn to Nevelson, let's talk a little bit about Dorothy Hood. Listeners may have seen her in a couple of, of MoMA shows in the last couple of years. I think one was at PS1. And she's certainly in their collection, but she's probably, she is better known in, in Texas and as kind of a somebody with ties to Central America, especially Mexico. So what's what's her story and how how did she end up so uh, important, if you will, in, in Texas and in Houston? Dorothy Hood was actually born outside of Houston in Bryan, Texas, but came here as a child. She grew up in a fairly comfortable but not particularly happy household. And in high school, she be showed an extraordinary talent for draftsmanship. And her teacher encouraged her to go to RISD, where she had a scholarship. So she entered the Rhode Island School of Design in 1938. And then after three years in Providence, made her way to New York and then thence to Mexico. The often told story is that Dorothy Hood then spent two unbroken decades in Mexico and Latin America. Recent study by Susie Khalil in a major monograph devoted to Hood has shown that her 
travel was much more porous. She went back to Houston often to renew her tourist visa, traveled to New York, traveled widely in Latin America. But in 1961, her husband, the composer Jose Maidena, became very ill with Parkinson's. And moving to Houston meant that she had a stronger family support system and better access to medicine in general than they had in Mexico City. So she came back to Houston in 1961 when the city was burgeoning in so many ways. James Johnson Sweeney had just joined the staff of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. The Manils were stepping up their patronage, importantly, across the board. And while Hood often said that she felt that Houston was an isolated boondock, she actually had enormous advantages working here, particularly through the support of a very generous art dealer, Meredith Long, who began to exhibit her regularly in 1962 and offered her a living stipend as well. Additionally, she joined the faculty of this museum school, where she worked for more than a decade. So she was very much at the heart of our scene here. During the first decade in Houston, she moved from a com somewhat, I would say, Max Ernstian form of abstraction to color field painting. And in 1970, with her first solo show at the Contemporary Arts Museum here, she emerged as a full-fledged and very sophisticated painter. I think the Ernstian shows most in, in her drawings. There's a work in the show called Devastated Log with Emerging Spirit that to me is particularly Ernstian. Her drawings seem to point to a, a really considered intentional interest in, in the natural world, in, in doing representation, but doing it in a way that, that's really organic. Yes, I think that Hood always drew her inspiration from nature. You look at many of the paintings, you recognize Texas skies, something that she often admitted to as well. But she was, first and foremost, a great draftsman. And for many years, that's how she was best known. And it was really only until the late 60s, early 70s, that her paintings got the same level of recognition and reputation. The paintings really are different. The paintings are less kind of immediately referential, I think, than the drawings. How might we consider the paintings? In what, in what kind of contexts and what was she adding to those contexts? Well, she certainly was deeply aware of color field painting. And this museum, like many mainstream museums, celebrated the color field artists in a number of exhibitions in the 1970s. And you can see perhaps some direct in references between her work and Helen Frankenthaler's. And she entered into a long correspondence with Clement Greenberg as well, starting in 1977. But her work stands distinct from the color field artists in that she never really embraced the raw canvas stain technique. Her paintings always were on primed canvases, to the best of my knowledge. And then she would unleash flows of pigment across them so that you often had similar effects to, say, that of Morris Lewis or Frankenthaler, but always with a firmer backing 
there was always a sense of, I think, layered and I would say deliberately layered space in the work of Dorothy Hood that is quite distinct from her contemporaries in the New York school. Yeah, a sense of depth and even even naturalism. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of a painting like 1968's The Light of Rain. Exactly. Which kind of, it's a really interesting painting. It suggests you know, there is within it that kind of color field way out of Abex, but unlike the color fielders in New York or Washington, her way her way out was maybe some of the same techniques, but the natural world. Yes, absolutely. And I think particularly in those years, Houston was a much smaller, less industrial city, a very green city. Another inspiration for Dorothy Hood was NASA. The fact that NASA made its home in Houston during the Johnson administration and Houston in the 1960s became known as Space City, was extremely important to Hood. There's another drawing in the show called the Supernal Twins, which is, supernal is another word for celestial, and it's a Gemini image, and I've always wanted to link that to NASA, the Gemini space shots, and her fascination with the cosmos. As in one interview many, many years ago, Hood said she traveled into space long before American astronauts did. That drawing's from about 1959, and it definitely has some of the Ernstian as well, right? Yes. We, we are not as secure with the dates as we would like, but certainly, yes, it's got that very controlled touch that she brought to her work. You are exhibiting a range of Nevelson, so sculpture, but also collage, which, I mean, for me, Nevelson's collages are some of the, the most underrated American work of the post-war period, and etching, sculptures that are both monumental, a smaller one that kind of recalls Louise Bourgeois. The monumental sculpture is pretty famous. What is it, and, and how did Houston come to have it? In 1969, we were an interim period of our museum history. James Johnson Sweeney had left. It was before Philippe de Montebello arrived. And there was a remarkably energetic woman called Mary Buxton, who took over the administration of the museum for a year and a half. And it was Mary Buxton who sought out Nevelson, talked to the people at Pace Gallery, and gave Nevelson her second U.S. retrospective only two years after the Whitney Museum gave Nevelson her first. And at the very core of the exhibition was a monumental work called Mirror Image, which Nevelson created specifically for that exhibition. That is one of her most clean-cut, reductive works. People are tempted sometimes to ally it to currents and minimalism, although I'm not quite sure that's the case. I see more Matisse cutouts than I do see Donald Judd in this piece. Let me just jump in really quickly to say that the date on it is 1969. It was created for our 1969 exhibition, and it was at the heart of the show. We have photographs of the installation where you walked in and you first saw an array of Nevelson's white totems, and then you stepped behind the first wall and mirror image filled the center of this dramatic Mies van der Rohe gallery. And, and, and of course, is it a mirror image? No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's slightly off center. Mies van der Rohe's architecture is absolutely symmetrical. 
And what Nevelson does is she plays with symmetry and asymmetry. So you have something that is almost symmetrical, but not quite. It's more like, an, you know, she always was interested in the idea of the mirror and the transparency. I see it closer to music. And of course, we know that Nevelson at one time aspired to be an opera singer and loved music deeply. And to me, it's like the kind of theme and variations that you find going back to Bach and through so much um, compositions throughout the centuries. Uh, you mentioned totems. There are Nevelson's totems. There are two of them in the show, one a smaller one in white and one a, a larger column in wood. Was she thinking about, do you think she was thinking about looking at Louise Bourgeois? That has been tackled a number of times, and they were friends at a certain period before both women's egos sort of got in the way of friendship. I think they were both very aware of totemic imagery. They were looking, again, at primitive art, a term we can't use anymore, but they would have used in their time. And we're very particularly aware in Nevelson's case of not only pre-Columbian totems, but North American Indian traditions. But I think that both of them were looking also at Max Ernst. He, the power of his influence on American art, I think, has not yet been measured. And interestingly, it's Ernst that's behind both Nevelson and Hood at decisive and early moments in their careers. I was remiss in not dating those two Nevelsons I, I brought up a moment ago. The larger of the two columns, Rainforest, column two is from 67. The smaller of the two, the white one, Floating Cloud, Cryptic Four, is from 77. Yes. And actually, both are wood. One just is painted black, one is painted white. And of course, these are the two aspects, complementary aspects that Nevelson brought into her work. She also explored, as you know, gold. But given the fact that this is an intimate show, I thought to focus only on her monochromes rather than bringing gold into the discussion as well. Both Nevelson and Hood make collages, and they do it as differently as, as can be done. For me, I think Nevelson's collages are among her most abstract works, and, and, and Hood was happy to load up her collage with, with representation, sometimes literally with, with objects that, that showed something recognizable. What about putting their collage together on walls interested you? Well, again, it's sort of like, you know, opposites attract. And there is a, once you look past the imagery, there is a certain informality in how the materials are cut and torn that, of course, is at the heart of collage that I think brings the work into interesting dialogue. But again, I think with Nevelson, the collage is firmly rooted in her experience of cubism. And in her collages, she allows her materials to speak of, to themselves. In her wood construction, she paints them this monochromatic black, white, or in instances gold to unify them. And the collage is made largely from pieces of plywood and paper she found on the streets of New York. 
the materials remain themselves. You see the grain of the plywood. You see that certain pieces of paper used to be folding boxes that have been unfolded. She's allowing a certain immediacy into the work uh, that is concealed in most of her constructions. With Nevelson, you're looking at a woman arm wrestling with early Picasso in particular, I think, as well as Brock, and that decisive moment when collage broke through in early cubism. With Hood, the arm wrestling is happening with the surrealists. Certainly the Manil collection's profound holding of surrealism, the work not only of Ernst but also Joseph Cornell, was always available to her. And she began making collages in part to record her travels. Nevelson picked up her collage material on her doorstep. Hood began making collages after her first trip to Egypt when she gathered up papers there that were particularly beautiful. And on every subsequent voyage, whether it was just to New York or further afield, she found fresh materials. I think collage was available to her also as the tight draftsmanship that defined her earlier works on paper became more difficult for her to control in her later years. Alison DeLima-Green, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Always a great pleasure to talk to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.